Well, you um, ever notice how difficult it is, or at least when you're, uh, you're watching movies or TVs or reading books or whatever, to see how difficult it is to depict heaven? I mean, to depict it in such a way that it really is a marvelous place that you really want to be there? I mean, I've yet to see a movie do it well. I mean, even the angels seem somewhat bored by the experience. There's, there's Dudley, you know, the angel from the bishop's wife, or maybe you know it from the, the preacher's wife. I mean, even, even if he looks like Cary Grant or Denzel Washington, he still, you know, he still isn't all that excited about heaven because he starts to fall in love with a human being and, and he, you know, he, he wants to have that. That's really what he wants. Um, or in the city of angels, you have the angel Seth, who, I mean, he, he wants so much to become immortal. You know, he jumps off of some high building so he be, could become a human being and feel the sensations that human beings feel, because that's evidently better than what you get up there in heaven. And so as we come to a topic about worshiping in heaven, I mean, all the more, at least I, as the minister, having to try to preach on this, find it so difficult to depict it in such a way that you're going to walk away and go, wow, I just cannot wait to be there in heaven. I mean, the limits are my own problems of just being creative enough. But the other problem is with all of us. And that is, we just have a, there's a limit to how much we can grasp glory. Now, we're going to consider those limits and hopefully maybe raise our sights a little bit higher. But, but actually, before to get, we get to that, I want to address a, a matter that I think has been tripping us up a little bit as we've been trying to make sense of, of heaven. And, you know, because now you've been learning that, well, the heaven we go to is kind of a temporary and then you still got to wait a, a long time for the other heaven. And how's that going to work out? And one of our problems is that as is how we think about time itself, time and space. You know, we think when we think about this, well, I'm going to die and then I'm going to be in heaven and it's going to go on, you know, year after year, a year before I finally get there. So we think of time in heaven in the same way we think of time on earth. It's measured by minutes and by hours and by I feel like the lights have come, inspired me here. You know. So we, we, we measure time here. Okay. Now, is that the way it's going to be in heaven? After we die? I mean, I, I mean, I don't understand these things. I have no scientific mind at all. But I, you know, I read this article about that Einstein's theory of relativity demonstrates that time and space are relative. It's all depending upon our circumstance and, and our gravitational force or whatever it's it's called. You folks out there with more science mind will understand that better. For me it's easier. I read children's books and I'm reading C. S. Lewis's series on, on Narnia and there you have these earth children and they just they go through a wardrobe and they're in another world, in another dimension. And they're there for years. 
And then they come back, and no time has elapsed at all on earth. Because, well, time works differently, apparently, in Narnia than it works here on earth. You know, someone asked me, and I was wondering if I was going to be asked that question, about, you know, when Jesus says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that problematic? Because Jesus, don't you have three days before you actually get up there? You know, you got the resurrection uh, still to come. Well, that may be a difficult dilemma for us to think it through. But it actually doesn't even measure to the dilemma when you think about how it was in the first place that the eternal God, the Son, he leaves heaven for a few years. And he comes here upon this earth and well, for that matter, I mean, he's nine months in a, you know, his mother's womb. I mean, where is he at that time? How, does God go away from heaven? Is he not doing his stuff as God during that time? So there comes a time when time itself is a mystery. And that's especially true when you're trying to apply time and space to God and to heaven where God dwells. Now, one practical question some of you might ask as we look at this subject about worshiping in heaven is, which heaven are we talking about? Is it the heaven of that intermediate state that we go to after we die? Are we talking about that, that heaven? Or is it that heaven when Jesus comes back The new Jerusalem comes down, heaven and earth come together and are restored. What are you talking about, preacher? Well, the answer is both. What is worship going to be like in heaven, whether it's right after we die, whether it's when Jesus returns? And it all can be summed up very easily in one word. It's going to be wonderful. That's really what the whole sermon is about. You can kind of tune out if you want to now, because that's what the message is. But it's all going to be summed up in one word. This is why it's going to make be wonderful. And that is the word glory. There's going to be the glory of God. There will be the glory of heaven. There will even be the glory of us. So let's take a look at that. I invite you to turn with me to the text in Revelation uh, chapter 4. And we're going to read, actually, first of all, just from verses 2 and 3, in which the text is depicting the glory of God, by the way, in the present heaven. What's taking place right now? Verse 2. John is up there. He says, he's got it. The door has been opened, and he's looking at heaven. Behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, we go to the heaven to come. We go all the way to Revelation 21. It also depicts God's glory, and it depicts God's glory as light. It says... The city, the new Jerusalem now, that's our heaven, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. So, 
First of all, it is viewing the full glory of God that's going to make worship glorious. Now, right now, we know God by faith. Sometimes we may feel God's presence. We might sense God's glory. Maybe we do that sometimes when we listen to a piece of music like we just listened to. Or maybe it's, you know, it's a scene. It's it's a spectacular scene. We've we've gone up to the, the top of the Rockies and we're looking out and we've sensed the glory of God. Or we we've gone to the beach. We're walking along the beach and we feel uh, the serenity of God. And particularly we, we see a sunset. And maybe to, it hitting the clouds. And we feel something. That there's something a little bit more. Something other that nature is pointing us to. But in heaven, there is no glimpse. There is no kind of passing moment of feeling. The presence of God. We will stand, or perhaps more likely, we will kneel in the presence of God, and then we will worship Him with all of our being. But the glory of God lies in something more than just a breathtaking experience. The essence of God is found in, actually, what the choir just sang about in the holiness of God. And this is seen in the other images of our text in verse 5. It says here, from the throne came what? Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. This is God's holiness being magnified. There are the strange four living creatures who are around the throne. And they never cease to say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and is to come. We've heard that before. They sound like the seraphim that Isaiah saw when he had his vision of of heaven. And what were they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so it is, it is holiness that causes all of the earth to tremble. It's holiness that causes fear in humans. Whenever in the scriptures angels appear and they, they're trembling and the angels have to say, fear, fear not. It is holiness that causes us to tremble. And yet also causes us to have a reverence for the concept of the sacred. Have you ever said this before? Is nothing sacred? Is there nothing that that is holy? Well, in heaven, all will be sacred. Because the holiness of God will be fully displayed and it will fully radiate everything in heaven. And so all will be sacred in heaven. All will be glorious because of God. But there's also just heaven itself will be glorious. 
Now, the book of, of Revelation, it refers to heaven a lot. And oddly enough, there is the barest description of what heaven is actually like. I mean, you think they're in chapter 4. That's where we would get it, John's. Heavens open up, I got an eye view, and let me tell you what I see. But John, and it's expected, what he sees is God, and that's what has his attention. But he does still, he gives a hint, a little bit of what is there. That's when he speaks of that throne, you know, with that rainbow that's going around it, and, and that rainbow has the appearance of emerald. And he talks about the floor. It's like a sea of glass. Like a crystal. Now what John is doing is having to use earthly terms to describe a heavenly sight. But we can, I think we can understand a bit of what he's trying to convey. What he's saying by the little bit of a description he gives to us is that there is a purity that is present in heaven. That's what the beautiful gems the, the crystal are depicting. So that when heaven later on becomes wedded to earth, we, we go all the way to, to Revelation 21. And you've got that heavenly new Jerusalem coming down to earth. And there will be what we could say is heaven on earth. The gems and crystal come back again to view. In fact, it's described in verse 11 of, of chapter 21. As having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Or it goes on in verse 19 to say that the foundations will be adorned with every kind of jewel. And there's that imagery that we all think about and like probably the most. The streets are going to be paved with what? Not just gold. But it be gold that is like transparent glass. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. For some of you, you read these images, and and they really capture your imagination. You're filled with with wonder. I mean, I mean, especially those streets of gold. We really like that concept. But then there are others. You know, you read about this, and it just doesn't quite do it for you. I mean, you might actually be like me. When, when I went to London, go to the Tower of London, and you go along the line, and you get to see the crown jewels, and I'm thinking, what's the fuss about? I'm just, I'm just not a guy into, I guess, these, these gems. I just don't quite see it. Some of you are probably really more interested in, in nature. When you hear about the city coming down, it's okay. But, you know, you read about this river, and that kind of has your interest. Because it's, that's a little bit more into to what you're into. But even, even then, that river is described as being having the appearance of crystal. And the point of it, of all these images and, that they're giving to us of heaven, is that... What we need to see, take whatever image comes for you that you can use, whether it's gems, whether it's rivers or gold or nature, take whatever it is. What you want those images is to convey for you 
is the concept of purity in heaven, of the glory that is in heaven, that will depict for you that when you're thinking about it, is the peace that you will have in heaven. That depicts for you the the joy that you will have in heaven. You know, in heaven there's going to be a sense when we finally get there in which we're going to say, it is like what I have never, never have imagined. Which it has to be. I mean, we, we just can't quite get there. But yet, and yet you're also going to get there and you're going to say, it's just exactly what, what I imagined. Just the way I thought it was going to be. We can't imagine exactly how it will be, how it gets to be that way. But there is a sense in which we will feel that it's, it's just right. Indeed, that of, of all the places that we have ever been, many of you have moved and lived in so many different places, and you've gone all around the world visiting so many places, and you feel like, I'm home. This is what I was made for, to be here. Think of it this way. You're going to build a house. Go to an architect and you you know what you want or you kind of know what you want. You, You have some concepts of what it should be like. You describe it to the architect and... And he or she go and goes to a drawing boards and works up all this model and you and you say, Nah, that's not quite it and goes back and it comes back and you say, That's it. That's it. Not because you gave him the measurements and you wanted to be so high and so long, and you want there's so many rooms. He listened to you. He could tell what it was that moved you and then put it together and you say, You got it. In the same way, we're to place our trust in God, as did Abraham. So, for example, in in Hebrews 11.10, it said that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And if God is the architect, God is the builder, it's going to be just right. So we're to trust God to provide a heaven, even a heaven on earth, as we're looking at the end days, that will be exactly what we will need and will fulfill our deepest desires. So we have to be careful that we don't get hung up on imagery. Because again, the imagery was not intended to give you a virtual tour of heaven. It's actually to answer theological questions. So, for example, this question. Will life always be unsettled? Will I always be looking for home? And the answer is no. You will not always wander about in the desert. This is being written to folks who are in the Middle East. You know what desert about. What the wilderness is not all these trees. It's barren. It's desert. You've got to keep moving. No. There's going to be a glorious sitting in which you will go into, and there you're going to find security. Will life always be like like a turbulent and dangerous sea? See, that's how the folks in 
of the Jews looked at the sea. You don't read in the Old Testament, we're talking about just the beauty and the joy of, of the ocean. There are danger, there are animals, the Leviathan there. There are these great storms and you drown in the sea. And when it says there will be no sea, all it is saying is this. You're going to live in a place without turmoil, without danger, purity, security, peace. It is in such a glorious place. That's where we will worship God. So in heaven, we're going to behold fully the glory of God. We will worship God in a place of glory. And now for what really is the most wondrous part of all. We will be glorious worshipers. Revelation 7 describes the dress of human worshipers who are now in heaven. They're wearing white robes. Now that may or may not catch your fashion fancy. But what's being displayed here is a theological truth. And what is that truth is, is that they, who had been on earth, will have been made holy, righteous. They will be pure, like the purity of the crystal in heaven. And so we, you and I, we will be pure. We will be spotless. There will be, it's not just a matter that our sins will be forgiven. There is no sin. There's no tarnish. There's no stain. There's no hidden guilty secret. There's no impure thought that we hope no one knows about. We will possess pure holiness ourselves. Pure love. And there is more. We, we will possess glory. Listen. First Corinthians 15. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Colossians 3.3. 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Or First Peter, chapter 1. Peter is saying, look, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise. It's like about you. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand what's being said here? You, yeah, you, will become a glorious being. You will bear no longer the image of the man of dust, that is Adam, but the image of the man of heaven, 
Jesus. We will all be changed. We will bear spiritual bodies, not bodies of spirits, but bodies that are fitted for a heavenly, eternal living. You know, C.S. Lewis, I think God is right. When he was describing our future appearance as such that if we saw such a person now, we would be strongly tempted to worship. It is glory that awaits us. And when that happens, when we enter into glory, when we behold the glory of God, when we take on glory, it will be, it'll be right. You know, I know that sounds like a weak word, but it is fitting. And we use that word whenever, you know, we experience something that just kind of it brings all the elements together in a very fitting way. And we just, we don't just say, well, that felt good. We just say, we say, this feels right. This is the way things, this is the way things should be. But until then, until it does all come together, it will never be just right. And this is particularly true in the case of worship. As much as we may have enjoy, we might enjoy worship, and you like coming here on a Sunday morning, it never quite feels exactly right. For example, God is not right to us. God oftentimes seems distant. It's difficult to worship what and who we cannot see. You know, we could say, well, let's, let's get an image. It might help us feel more focused in our worship. But as God made, has made very clear, it leads us to worship a false image of God. Now, for some, some people have difficulty worshiping God as Father because of their own harsh fathers. You know, Jesus seems closer to us, but even then we have difficulty regarding him as God. You know, yet the Father is God, and then Jesus is like a brother to us. And the Holy Spirit, well, he just seems so impersonal. And then, they have, okay, well, let's just worship God as the Trinity, and that really is confusing. Now, you might say, look, like, the problem is not with God, the problem is with us. With our imperfect image, imagining of God. And you're right. We can't see God. We certainly do not see God in all of his glory. And that's one reason our worship falls far short. We, we actually sang that. In that second hymn, is that verse that says, Weak is the effort of my heart, and cold my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. But let's just pause for a moment. What if, what if right now we were to see God as he is? What if we were to see Jesus as Jesus is right now? There are actually experiences of it in Scripture. Isaiah had such an experience. He had this vision of God in the temple, and and here is Isaiah's response when he sees God. Woe is me, 
for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. John has a vision of Jesus that he records back in chapter 1 of Revelation. How does he respond? He falls down as dead. Seeing God in all of his glory did not feel right to Isaiah or to John. It actually felt terribly wrong. Now why? Well, Isaiah said why. He was a sinner. Sinful men cannot look upon the God of holiness without becoming undone. And so Isaiah had to have his sins atoned for him. John had already had his sins atoned for by Jesus. But even then, atonement does not clean away all the vestiges of sin. We're justified, we're fully justified, but we're not still fully sanctified. And until then, tell you what, we cannot abide the full glory of the Holy God. Now, we believe that that full sanctification is going to take place. It will take place when we die. So then when we are with God, when we are with Christ, as we are told that we will be, we're not going to feel the fear. But actually, we'll feel peace. Indeed, if anything, we're going to feel joy. And in, the, and in that joy, we're going to worship God. Once we ourselves are made Right. God will be right for us. So God will be right for us, and heaven will be right for us. For now, heaven kind of seems boring. I mean, all the pictures we get, whether it's in the movies or we see them in cartoons, we're just going to be on a cloud and kind of wear these white sheets. Maybe we'll get this little harp that we can strum and that's going to be about it. But our problem lies not in heaven. It lies in our poor imagination here that we have on earth. Again, I I want to turn to C.S. Lewis. Actually, let me just go ahead and tell you. If I had one piece of human writing that that is the only thing I could have with me, It is actually a sermon that he delivered that you can find in a book somewhere. The weight of glory. That is what I would have with me. So then he writes here about our lack of enthusiasm about the glory of heaven. He says, look, we are half-hearted creatures. Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go make, making mud pies in a slum because we just cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So, as imaginative as the mind of human beings can be, the glory of heaven, it just eludes us. But then there's no wonder in that. How can the imagination of man break into eternity, into divine glory? We we can occasionally have senses of it. There are brief moments that 
that awaken us to, you know, there's something more than what's here on the earth. But we cannot break into that heavenly world and of that world that is still to come. So it's lack of imagination, just our frailty there. But here's what really limits us there, is our own sinful minds. We simply cannot imagine pure holiness as something that is enjoyable. We just can't somehow link holiness with joy. We can't link righteousness with love. And when we think of people who are holy, indeed, we think of people who are unloving. People who are unreal. I mean, don't we like to say, well, I'm glad to find there's something wrong with you? Because what? It makes you human. And what we're saying is, I can't handle perfection. We don't want to know someone who is perfectly good. We don't want to live where everything is just right because to us, because to us in our sin, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right because our sins have made us not right. But brothers and sisters, when we are made perfectly right, when we become glorious beings ourselves, then it will feel right. It will feel right to enter into a perfect heavenly world and worship together with the glorious saints, the God of all glory, then it is all glory. We give you praise, our God, for this, for what awaits us. Glory of heaven. The glory of ourselves. The glory of worshiping you in all of your glory. Father, keep raising our eyes, our sights. Let us not be comfortable here upon this earth to keep yearning all the more for this inheritance that awaits us and as you have promised us we will receive it because you have made that promise and you will keep it we thank you in Christ's name